With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Accidental Podcast or something like that. I'm Les Bubka and in today's episode I'm talking to Jamie Clapp from Chimera Martial Arts. Jamie is an author, podcaster and self-protection expert. He specializes in teaching children. Uh, Jamie has a huge presence online. He's teaching a lot of online uh, seminars, uh, sessions, um, and uh, his expertise in the field of um, self-protection is second to none. Our conversation started a bit unusual. We've been talking about uh, Jamie raising a kangaroo in his house, uh, which is unusual, um, is in relation to his work. Uh, we also cover um, all the aspects of um, self-protections and his ideas on a um, podcast and where he gets them from. If you never heard this podcast, um, please go and listen to it. It's, it's really, really good. A uh, bit of advertising, advertisement, if you would like to um, support the channel uh, or support our club. We've got a range of uh, t-shirts which can be found on Les Bubka, uh, COUK. And um, um, please feel free to share this um, podcast if you enjoy it. And if you really, really like it, please subscribe. Enjoy the listening. What are you doing in a, in a zoo? Uh, I, what, what am I doing now in the zoo? Yeah. Yeah, I just work in the office. It's just the boring uh, stuff. Yeah, no, no, it's not really anything particularly interesting in that part of it. I have to just manage that part, but it, uh, it keeps a regular thing. I'm kind of I'm still stuck in a bit of a transitional period at the moment, um, trying to get, do, do what I want to do full time and that. And it's just that. Um, but it's got, you know, it's got very good over the last couple of years, you know, but I just have to. It's going to make it's, it's a it's going to be a timing issue. <laughs> yeah, it's always is, isn't yeah it? more than anything in that. But it's uh, no, it's looking very good for the martial arts side of stuff. It really, really is. But of course, uh, but the zoo's not been very good either, um, during COVID and that's stuff. Uh, mm. yeah. It's a private zoo. So they train animals for the film industry. You know, it's not, it's not open to the general public. It's a different sort of setup altogether. Yeah. Mm. So you're not handling animals. Uh... No, nothing I don't handle it well <laughs> when they get put on us um I just mixed up a bottle some I just mixed up just before I just did this I just mixed a bottle of uh, milk for the kangaroo in my house because uh well a few years ago my <laughs> a few is a long story but a few years ago um I came back from uh, teaching a private lesson and uh, it was the middle of January and um freezing cold and the rest of it and I, and I came in the house and my daughter came running up to me and said uh, uh we're keeping it whatever you say we're keeping it because uh, she knows what i'm like with animals because i've been brought up with them my whole life i mean really really when i was a kid it was like mowgli i just was brought up with cubs all around me and 
my mum just looking after sick animals and raising cubs that have been rejected and all that kind of thing. That was my whole childhood, just from, from day one. You know, no brothers and sisters, just other than extended sort of circus family, which is, you know, it's always the case, but just animals all the time. And my mum's priorities were always on that. So I kind of like, you know, <laughs> I've always been trying to get away from them, but I never ever have done. You know what I mean? They've always just been around me. And now my family now loves animals, of course. We're here now. We built our house on the zoo. Um, just because that's the way things ended up going um, and this I went into the living room and, and that's why I always say no you know to any pets I mean at the moment I'm not doing very well we've got we've now ended up taking on two dogs and two cats at the moment so you know <laughs> so I'm not I'm not doing very well at, do, at doing that side of it but anyway um, and I went in the living room and hung up on the uh, inside the living room in a rucksack this is, I saw this little head with ears poking out, um, like a gremlin, and, uh, and it was a kangaroo. And what happened was, was that what a kangaroo had been uh, rejected by its mother, mm -hmm. uh, first time, her uh, first baby, and uh, couldn't go into, um, it, it, was, it was found trying to jump into everyone else's pouch, okay, mm -hmm. trying to find pouch because the mother had rejected it, fallen out, and the mother didn't want it back. Um, so this he was jumping around again. This is January, so serious problem. This is, and it needs, you know, kangaroos. <laughs> uh, kangaroo milk, funnily enough, it changes, you know, through the whole because they, 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 you know, when they're born, they're they're like they're tiny little pink things, and they crawl up, they go, they go into the pouch, and then they suckle while they're in the pouch, and the milk changes, the nutritional of the, the nutrients in the milk changes as as the kangaroo gets older. It's quite uh, an interesting procedure. Um, and, and no one knew how to, how to raise one, but even though, you know, we've had all this extensive experience in that, there's not a lot of success with raising kangaroos in, um, outside of Australia, really. Mm -hmm. And one of the main reasons, you just can't get the milk powder. Um, and uh, what tends to happen is people end up trying to put together, cobble together formulas, and, um, and if they have too much sugar, they get, they, they're not like, they, they don't, they can't have lactose, they get, they could go blind. And then, you know, so you get this kind of thing all going on. And my wife decides she's in for the challenge and uh, and decides to raise it here. So I'm back to, oh, bloody hell, another animal. <laughs> so, so, you know, the kangaroo starts, so she walks around, she's got herself her own little makeshift pouch and all the rest of it and, you know, and uh, starts and eventually starts hopping around the place as it gets older and, and, and you can't house train them. They're impossible to house train. They're like any other sort of um, herbivore. You know, they just, they just, poo all, all day long so you like got, got prapple so we have to deal with all this and you know the laminate flooring was you know was already kind of like oh no that's gone <laughs> you know that was all going on like so um but what we did we we sourced the milk luckily one of the fortunate things about having been part of the circus community is that you have everybody it's like an extended family it's a very cultural thing so <laughs> almost anywhere in the world you'll find a circus family connection so we went to um so I had, a con I had a contact in Australia, believe it or not, and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll ask her. And she got it organised and sent over. And that was vital. That's vital. So the kangaroo, he ended up being reintegrated into the group successfully. And it's interesting. You know, when we talk about training. It's interesting because what he had with us was effectively a type of very elementary training. You know, he was being trained around the house when to go to and that. And he became very uh, independently minded. Whereas all the other kangaroos all congregate in a mob and they'll, they'll only ever go, and they're very, very wary because they're very nat naturally flight animals. He's not scared of anything. Okay, he'd been crap in the wild, but, 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 but back at the zoo, he's perfect. He's not scared of absolutely anything. Okay, so he's, you know, 
uh, you know, we had was building going on, and he was investigating with the builders and like that. And he just trying, he just not absolutely just not not deterred by anything. And he even when all the rest of them will go in the kangaroo house when it gets cold, he work has worked out that he can get in in the in the uh, into the tortoise house. We've got like a tortoise house. And it's got a warm floor, so he he just goes sod you lot. I'm going to go off and <laughs> just lie on the floor there. So it's very interesting just to see how you you, you know how training just really you know this is what. Um, uh, my great uncle did when he started when he began the safari parks he like innovated the safari parks and that's what he discovered was like animals that had actually been captured from the wild in certain situations when they've been overpopulation and things like that uh, back when that was um, a lot easier uh, those animals would, were completely um, they lacked the confidence of the trained animals animals that had come in that have been trained they didn't have any of that sort of confidence and um, you know so it shows you just how much you know what happens with training but anyway to this day now um, he's on a it's like it's like his protein shake so it doesn't do him any harm it doesn't so it's all nutritionally balanced and it's fine I mean he's, he's way too old to be drinking it but it's it's cool um, and he it's his treat they use it as a training aid so when I put it when I put harness on you he won't do anything without his milk he has to have his milk and then he'll do it he'll do it for you and it's like that so like you know he, run, he calls the shots that way so yeah just before that I'm still mixing the milk up I'm going I can't believe I'm still mixing the milk up that's like <laughs> you know it's a it's equivalent of sort of like you know I suppose packing a packed lunch for your for your adult child or something you know what I mean? <laughs> that's what it feels like you know it's like oh, for god's sake <laughs> you know like making a packed lunch for your, a 30 year old son or something you know? <laughs> that's what it feels like <laughs> Yeah. So uh, my wife attended a few of your courses under my name. She loves them, especially the ones about the uh, children's self-protection. Um, I love your book as well, the, uh, where aren't parents around. I might have, I'm rubbish with remembering titles and stuff, so I'm uh, sorry if I butchered that one. I'm going to put the link below so I can get it. You're listening. It's, it's much better than my Polish. So <laughs> <laughs> look, look you, have, you have to, everyone has to call you Les because, because the English problem with pronouncing your full name. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, 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 that doesn't work in English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me, how did you get involved into uh, children's air protection and stuff? Because that's a very unique, unique set of skills. Uh, and how did you get up in there? Um, I think, it, to be honest, I mean, I'd like to say that way I teach is I'm part of what I'm teaching is very service driven. I mean, I've got my own passions and interests and things like that, which I, I bring into it. But I, but I, I, I have always tried to put. Um, I love teaching. Okay, it's number one. Okay, it's one thing I do. I love teaching. Uh, everything about martial arts. One of the best things I like. One of the main things I like doing is teaching. And for a long time, um, I'd hear back from people. Um, when they were teaching martial arts, were saying, um, if you're going to run martial arts as a business, if you're going to run a club, you've got to have um, children's classes because it's mm -hmm. 70, 75, whatever the statistics are, but it's, it's definitely over 70%, you know, of, of children worldwide involved with commercial martial arts or with full-time professional martial arts are children. So, you know, so people were saying that to me, but, and at that time, it corresponded with my interest in self-protection. Okay, so that, at, at that particular point, I, in my martial arts journey, I went back into um, what uh, the tribe, we call it reality-based self-defense. It's a horrible term. It's, um, I've got real issues with that, but I accept it as a type of moniker for a, a, a section of the martial arts community, should we say. Yeah, it's just like traditional martial arts. Is a, it's a crap term. You know, traditional martial arts is not a very 
you know, I've had several people who would consider themselves saying, I'm a traditional martial artist, but I don't like being called a traditional martial artist because the connections and connotations that it has with that. And other people who completely embrace it. But I don't like the term reality-based self-defense, even though I kind of accept I come under that moniker and Mm. I accept that part of it. So, but anyway, I was getting heavily involved in that part of it and I was passionate about teaching that. And suddenly... I was about to open my club and it came back to say, well, you know, children, you've got to have children's classes. And in my naivety, rather than thinking to myself, like what most commercial martial arts teachers are like, oh, I'll just do a kickboxing class. Mm. You know, what I'll do is I'll, because I I taught kickboxing for a long time, for, you know, for a long time. Um, I'd done American, European, and then eventually Muay Thai, you know, so, so, uh, um, you know, I could, I could run a kick, you know, I eventually did do a kickboxing class, but that's another story. But again, um, attempted anyway. Um, but um, I thought, you know, rather than thinking like, let's do a commercialized kids class. Let's just do a class where they just, you know, we'll just make it simpler. No, no, no. I wanted to teach what I wanted to teach. I wanted to teach what I thought um, people needed. And that was self-protection. And, and then as soon as it came to teaching to kids, all these questions started coming up, mm. you know, all these straight away. It's like, well, what can you teach to children? This, this can be, and how do you teach children self-protection? And how does self-protection relate to children? This is, the, you know, this is the, was the big issue. Mm. Um, you know, you look at, I mean, there's enough problems with that amongst adults, to be honest, whether it's gender um, issues with regards to how violence is being handled. Um, uh, you know, Tracy Radley made a good point of that on your show, just about how, you know, uh, female and male perceptions about violence and, and, and threats, which is, wonderful point you made on the show and that's exactly right we often don't think about it but also prior to that in some of the more thoughtful self-protection teachers would say to me things like uh, uh, would teach things like well this self-protection is fine remember it comes but w- think about where it comes from you know so sometimes some self-protection will come from combatives which comes from the military uh-huh. so you know you and you adapt it for the street or you adapt it for the street to adapt it for civilian life and um, you, you, but you, uh, it still carried with it many of the trappings that had come from a military environment, which don't necessarily have an automatically translation over. In fact, culturally, there'll be a lot of differences and a lot of dynamic differences and, and a different type of um, predator, a different type of enemy. And the same thing, you know, say it goes into all different areas. So when you get to children, you're looking at a totally different uh, uh, sphere. And also you're looking at so many people's assumptions about what is self-protection for children. Um, and I remember this because I, I was started to teach the classes. So I started adapting the stuff that I was learning for adults to children because I needed to have a children's class. And I got more and more interested in it. Um, and obviously, you know, I think I've got what well, you know, some some adults do, some adults don't. But I've got a natural desire to be able to protect children. You know, I, you know, it's um, I had two step kids, you know, so at the time, you know, I've got my own daughter, but I had two step kids at the time and um, and uh, stepson was passionate about martial arts as well at the time he'd be he, he really you know he loved it his stepfather was a martial artist and I was going to train him and so, so, so I was looking at him and I was looking at his friends and I was thinking what's going to protect them what what are their dangers what, the, what what's the um what's the type of enemy they're likely to face so I did the research on that and uh, obviously I went back and thought about my own childhood experiences growing up in, on the circus where awareness is a skill that's taught from a very early age when you're living in a sort of a, a, a transient culture, a culture that's moving around the place and going into different environments all the time. It's not just pers- the obvious dangers of living on a, on a traveling show where you've got mm-hmm. everything from wild animals to 
uh, falling poles and uh, machinery moving around the place on a regular basis. You've got all those um, concerns, which are very relevant ones, but also the idea that every time you move, you're going into a totally different environment, totally different community, totally different people, and you're a stranger to them. And so immediately you're going to, you know, a lot of people are going to welcome you in there, but there's going to be some degree of antagonism. We know this through history. We know that yeah. when, when, when people have traveled, there's always been that. So when, when you're a child, you, you know, you're taught all these sort of things from an early age. You don't even think of it as education. It's just, it's just part of your life, if you know what I mean, you know. So th- th- I drew upon that and I drew upon adapting what I knew for the adults. And funny enough, I did get some pushback <laughs> in the martial arts community because a lot of them thought I was crazy for doing it. You know, when I actually thought that's what I was going to do. And I was going, but you're all teaching self-defense to children. This is what you said you were going to do. Teach self-protection to children. This is what you're pushing. This is what's on your publicity. This is what you, you're talking about. And they go, yeah, but I don't. And then they look at you and they go, yeah, but I don't literally mean teaching the modern combatives and stuff, what you're teaching to adults to children. So that's, that's crazy. So I was going, well, why is it? I said, why, why? So what are we doing? We're deluding the kids. And I remember having this conversation in a meeting where somebody realized, you know, they, I was being advised, you know, business advisors in the martial arts, you know, I was getting all my, my whole direct debit system sorted out and they were seeing them lovely people, but, you know, a lot of background in commercial martial arts. But as soon as I told them, most teams teach kids, they went, yeah, great. Got a kid's class. That's a really good idea. You know, and they started giving me all the statistics about numbers of kids and in martial arts. And I said, yeah, I said, and, and what you teach them? I said, well, because they said, you know, you've got to think about your publicity for this. And I went, self-protection. And they looked at me and went, not really. <laughs> and I went, yeah, actual self-protection. And they, go, and they had images. And again, this is always a problem within the reality-based self-defense world. We have what we call, what I call a pornography within reality-based self-defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I mean a pornography is that people will see um, uh, a, reality, a lot of reality-based self-defense stuff and they see all the gore. You know, it's all the promotion of it. You know, people biting each other's faces and eye gouges. And it's all the, you know, this stuff is fast, too dangerous for the cage and all this, you know, you hear all this stuff, you know, too dangerous for this. And and they're all, you know, obsessed about all this kind of, um, I, I would, I, that's why I say it's pornography, because that's what, you know, essentially what they're, you know, they're responding to. They're, they're, uh, they're immediately excited by the idea of doing um the, the, the illegal moves and that that makes up their system and that's why it's so dangerous and all the rest of it and you look at it and you go half the time you're going mm, yeah it's nasty it's horrible it's it's uh it's sadistic maybe sometimes but it's not necessarily effective though you know it's like it, it, you know, look at the efficiency of the self-defense part of it so I, that's another discussion but that's what uh, you know what the images in mind were of the people who advised from the business and go no 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 no. i'm teaching them efficient self-defense so we you know we, i'm just teaching them you know how to be aware um how to escape you know ta- proper tactical escaping avoidance techniques and so oh no, it's going to be boring oh no it'll undermine the parents that was one argument i got forward was that if you teach children self-protection that's going to undermine the parents because it's saying to the parents they're not they're not skilled enough to teach their children how to protect themselves and 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 i'm thinking well that's rubbish you could do a first aid course it doesn't mean that you know children aren't taught how to look after themselves by their parents but you'll go to a first aid course you'll send your child to a first aid course um, and expect it to be taught in schools and um you know there's a variety of different things you know you teach your you know you teach your kids to read and write but it doesn't mean that you're not going to send them to school to have them uh, to, to read and write but you know this is <laughs> and again and that that also touched upon something with me that later on with how much i'd get the parents on board 
um, you know, because this was it. When I came to teach in the South Protection for Children, I, I said to myself, well, how do I get, um, how do I make, do my best to ensure these skills are going to stay with these kids or, you know, so, and the best way to do that, I need a contract with the parents. I need an agreed form, um, informal contract with the parents. And you've got to say to them, look, you send your children to my classes. I'm teaching them this stuff. Um, I don't want you to be shocked by anything that they're training in. I want you to understand what I'm teaching them. I want you to understand the, the background behind it. And, um, and I want you to be part of it you know, more than anything else, you know, I want that, those children to be trying to teach you this stuff. Because again, another part of my teaching is I like to turn my students into teachers. I don't like, I don't actually even like calling them my students. You know, I do it as a shortcut. You know, they're, they're people who train with me. You know, I, I like to think that, you know, I'm giving them information, but, uh, you know, I, I try and promote very much a, a ground up approach. I like the information that's been fed. But, and the kids are the best for doing that. They're wonderful because they're incredibly, uh, you have an honest, straight feedback. You have the honesty through the physical training. You know, it, it, they'll straight up test it. You know, you'll do, you can do, a, a, you know, a game, <laughs> which is a game to the kids. Funny enough, you take the same drill that you'll teach the kids as a game and transfer it to the adults and you've got a war on your hands. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the things I noticed. You know, essentially what is a game of, a, a developed game of TIG you know, or tag or it, or whatever you want to call it, and one of the catch chase games for the kids is a fun game that they'll do amongst those. And you, and you adapt and develop it into a game of tactical evasion and uh, counter assault techniques and all this kind of thing you can derive from that game. And it's fun because they like to do it. And, but it's also actually a pressure test. It's actually a pressure test because you put equipment on and, they, and you know, they start being allowed to use various different techniques and, you know, there's loads of grappling because of the grabbing and all that sort of thing. And they're using strikes and shouts and headbutts and all sorts of stuff that's going on. Even, you know, because you've got the right protective equipment. And you turn that to, a, to an adult lesson and that turns into <laughs> it's murder ball or something, you know, going on in there. So it's uh, uh, it, it, it's interesting for that transfer. But yes, a lot of the stuff I found with kids, well, a lot of the time I was having to ways I was having to explain things to children and, and, and through things. It, it would then feed back to me and all my mistakes often we used to come out with the kids you know a yeah. classic one would be turn they went they turned up at a grading once and um and it came to doing some some uh, sparring actually just just normal sparring and they, they were hitting each other's hands each other's gloves in the sparring and it just took me back and went this is too much pad work you know or my pad work it, you know it's what ian abernethy calls the training matrix you know my yeah. training matrix wasn't harmonious enough they, were, they weren't seeing the transfer enough, you know. We're in, I know in the karate world, people refer to it as like 3K karate. That's the expression for it there. Yeah. It happens anywhere else where you've got training and there's not enough links and, and uh, transference going on. And that mistake really led me down a very long path of coming up with systems for training that made sure they had a, a, a strong linked relationship so that we did things like, so we started going into target familiarization. So, you know, you'd, you, you, you would um, everything from like teaching a preemptive strike. You make sure that a person is striking the target that they would do. They do it with control. They wouldn't hurt the other person. It would be touch contact. Then you transfer it to the pads, to the focus mitts, and they'd be able to hit it as hard as they want, uh, pretty much. And then after that, you'd have somewhere in the middle, a type of pressure test with safety equipment in, but certain restrictions in place where they'd be able to test it again. And so obviously between the three of those, you, you start getting something that gets closer to a realistic situation. So yeah, loads of that. So why, and the short answer is, is because the demand was there 
um, and I happened to be teaching self-protection at that particular moment. I didn't have an epiphany. It was just, it was just, I, it just seemed natural to me. Well, what are you teaching? Well, my stuff's going to be self-protection based. Well, children have got to be one of those um, main factors of it. And then once I got into it, it fed it back and I, and, and I learned so much. I learned so much from it. It really helped me inform an awful lot of adult self-protection training and a lot of um, my cross-training information as well. So from the, what you said about the self-protection and pushback, uh, I'm wondering, because uh, I've got a four-year-old son and we start doing uh, some stuff uh, inspired by you because <clears throat> I stay away from using the term of self-defense or self-protection when I teach um, out of my scope on awareness and stuff like that. That's something which I'm not exploring, but it, for me, it's uh, the art. We're doing the art. Um, but, you know, st- uh, doing with him, and my question is, um, did you help, how do you explain to the teachers and um, headmasters, headmistresses, um, that the kids on some point have to defend themselves? Because it's always, oh, your son been fighting, but there's no exploration of why did he have to fight? It's you, always, you shouldn't be fighting, you should come to the teacher. That's yeah. not always the option that you can go to teacher. How do you explain that to across the board of the teachers, parents, and, and stuff? Um, uh, well, yeah, well, well, obviously parents, we get them on board. Obviously, the, the parents from day one, the parents are on board dealing with it. Teachers the same. Funny enough, some of my biggest advocates have been teachers. Teachers mm-hmm. I win over very early because um, I, I, I'm... <laughs> It sounds a bit kind of um, glib, but it, uh, I'm telling the truth. Do you know what I mean? When I, when I present the story to them, I'm saying, do you know, we teach children to protect their personal space. So this is something that is relatable within a school environment. You know, if someone's an educator, they understand that young children um, n- uh, need to have their own, they need to have their own personal space. I mean, that's one of the ways that you try to, because this is what happens with kids. Kids don't recognize boundaries or barriers and they're all over each other. And that's how they express themselves. You know, they, they express themselves like that before they're even talking uh, properly, having dialogue there, you know, wrestling and natural news kind of roughhousing with each other. So they kind of, and they don't know when necessarily these boundaries are, and this is how they kind of learn between it. So, you know, teaching personal space, teaching, um, keeping your hands to yourself and stuff like that. These are all stuff that has been around education. So I use a lot of the principles that, that I teach in self-protection built on that. So if you, um, I have taught preemptive strikes in schools um, every single time I've been invited to teach a self-protection course to um, in a school. And virtually every time I've done that, um it's been in front of a head teacher okay um recently i've done teenagers the last couple of years that wasn't in front of head teachers but it was in front of the head of the uh, pe department anyway completely endorsed what i said when i mean this is just it because it's like you say to people yeah i teach i know i remember when i first went to a martial arts lesson that that said um we're an aggressive martial art i remember hearing this once well, the first martial art I, prote- I i trained in uh yeah the teacher went we're an aggressive martial art i went interesting that and he went and, he went, and, uh, and he said by, what I mean by that is that we teach you to hit first funny enough that martial art really didn't but this particular teacher did um, and uh, and I thought that can't be right uh, I just in my head because I just I'd read so much you know I'd seen the karate kid and I'd seen um, you know again all this kind of thing even though the evidence had been around me within the circus background I'd seen plenty of fights and been involved in fights and all that sort of thing even though I'd seen all that once I'd got into martial arts 
I started feeling I was a bit above all that, funny enough. I was beginning to start to feel a bit, you know, above that part of it. Because I really, I, I was kind of bought into the fantasy part just to begin with. It was a sort of escapism. Yeah. Even though it's funny, isn't it weird? Because, you know, people often say that we have this idea that um, that cognitive dissonance doesn't affect intelligent people. Or cognitive dissonance doesn't affect um, uh, 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 experienced people. Right. You've got this idea that if you've been if you've been around, you're jaded, you know, to, just as we believe that somebody with a very high, high IQ is not going to believe something ridiculous, which is completely wrong. We know we know they do. Um, we also believe that somebody who's really experienced and jaded and lived a life, they're not going to believe any nonsense. Certainly no nonsense about violence. <clears throat> it's not true. It's not true. Um, the high intelligent person, um, the danger with that is, is that, yeah, they're going to be right about most things. But when something comes up in their life that they don't know about and they disagree with somebody because it's a belief that they've developed at a certain time, they're going to double down harder on their defense of that because they've gone through life being more intelligent than other people. They're very used to being right. So something deep, deep back in their mind, they're going, okay. So likewise, with a tough person, with a person with a lot of uh, background in, in violence and fighting, something like that, if they suddenly believe in something that's... Um, uh, uh, nonsense to us or, or nonsense to you know the average person even like that but they're going to feel like well I've been in x amount of fights um, and I believe in this therefore I must be right and it's true I've, I've known people funnily enough in um, you know we, we find that some people who live in the most extreme conditions are extremely superstitious because they're living on the edge all the time and they need and we naturally look for patterns and stuff like that so you find kind of stuff like that so yeah you have a kind of um you, you know you, you you will double down on that sort of cognitive distance so again so obviously so i forgot i went too far off on that one but anyway, yeah. back to the school and they had when you once you start explaining to the teachers uh, all the procedures that go in place of it and what you're doing it and like you're talking about personal space and distances and and um and keeping distances and keeping hands to oneself and protecting personal space and all that kind of thing, they, um, they can accept it. They can accept the concept of boundaries and they can accept the concept of offence. Um, and just recently I had a report back from a, a child at a, school, a secondary school who um, um, had had to uh, hit a boy first as a preemptive strike. And, uh, Report did a complete procedure. You know, she trained to, trained to deal with the situation. Um, she 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 preempted, reported straight to the teacher. The teachers completely came down on her side. And it turns out the boy obviously had a bit of bit of uh, um, uh, form. <laughs> you know, he'd, he'd done it a few times before and stuff like that. And she was defending herself. You know, and, and how she how she phrased it, how she described it, which exactly what it was. She was stopping an assault from happening. Someone was being aggressive towards her, who she perceived as being a threat. She couldn't get out the situation at that particular moment. She did what she needed to do in order to do it. She didn't go in and then started beating him up or anything like that. She did enough to get rid of, to, to prevent to, to neutralize the threat, to subdue the threat at that particular moment. And again, when you phrase that kind of thing, it's, you know, the teachers sort of understand, you know, what you're talking about. And of course, bottom line is also the law is there to protect children as it is to protect adults. When you're saying to when you're saying to kids saying this is you're protected by law, you know, in terms of preemptive striking, you know, in a justifiable situation. You know, and when people understand that you've before you've got to that stage, we have done 
de-escalation, we have done um, aversion, we are looking to make an escape, you know, we've done all the games that are all tactical escape games, they're going, yeah, of course I completely understand that. And above all else, the other thing kids point pushed me to do was to get out a pressure test for preemptive striking. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I remember this, I was teaching I, I, one particular period, I started to get invited. I don't think I get invited very often after this, but I, I used to get invited to teach one-hour workshops at martial arts extravaganzas and mm-hmm. expos and all the rest of that sort of thing. And I remember being in rooms where I'm really excited about new stuff we've been developing in the lessons and training stuff, and I really want to bring this to the to a new audience. And I'm just about getting into it, and I make a lot of assumptions. And one of the assumptions I make, for example, is preemptive striking. You know that everybody sort of thought, I thought, you know, come on, it's been at that time. It was back in the two thousands. So, you know, it's been a decade with all this stuff in the in the martial arts press and Jeff Thompson and all these other people that are out there and Peter Considine, you know, promoting this. You know, surely everybody must accept now that you know it's proven that you know that you know preemptive striking is your best form of natural hard skill defense you know it's what you want to go for um and and i realized that they didn't you know everybody was still locked stuck in block and counter everyone was still sparring distancing and one step and that kind of you know all completely that sort of mentality that and that react reactive training reactive training that was all there and I, re- I went oh okay and so i had to come up with a very quick way in order to move things on a very quick way to make sure that i had everybody on the same page and the way i did it was i just tested preemptive striking i just set it up i set up a, a test um that i can do anywhere um not where i get myself out of it and it involves four met four um four students and they essentially you know you you set up the distance that you're going to have in a conversation and you just see if somebody can block it within you know when when someone's going to strike it and of course and I do it under very clinical conditions, um, and I'm out of it. You know what I mean? It's all being uh, controlled by the students. And no matter how much training someone's got or background someone's got, you know, you come out that majority of people cannot block within within that distance. It's just, it's just it's not going to happen. So once that's done, you've got everybody on board. So uh, bringing back to the say the headmistress or the headmasters that I've been teaching in front of, um, uh, you know, after going through explain the de-escalation and doing the tactical escape and talking all that part of it when it actually comes to the combative part of dealing with a situation where you're saying you've now presented a, a situation where you're going look this is someone who's cornered it's a member this is someone who's cornered who's going to get physically hurt okay they're doing this to stop themselves get physically hurt they're not doing it with the intention of physically hurting somebody because they want to physically hurt somebody they're doing what isn't required in that situation to stop someone physically hurt and when all other options have gone okay um and what's that going to be and it's not going to be blocking their blocking their strike or their attack okay because this is the test so when you then back that up with that part of it it becomes very difficult for someone to argue against that you know when you, you present that sort of thing and they're and they're happy with it because it, it, it's how it's presented i've often had that thing where people said to me oh don't you worry about teaching bad people don't you worry about teaching the bullies don't you worry about teaching i go not really so because the environment i teach it in it doesn't it's not good for a bully it's not good for a predator it's completely it's 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 not presented in that in that way you know it's 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 uh, it, it doesn't um it's it's using a using a fence um is not a good concept for a predator it's a, it's a good yeah. concept for a person trying to defend themselves you know that's a classic example of that 
so would you recommend to um, uh, how to phrase it? Um, talking up front with the teachers that listen, my son is training that. That's what he's gonna do when things happen. Or wait till it happen if it happened. Hopefully, it's not gonna happen. But wait till after the uh, the incident, and then the little one can explain what's happened, and then you step in. Or I would say that what's going to happen is is that something something will happen before you know about it. You know what I mean? Your your little one's going to come back to you with a report um, to say such and such is happening. And to be honest, kids kind of like you know, in most cases, they're, they're just like adults do. They don't realise the situation has started to you know develop. I mean, that's why it's really important. I think it's important to talk to, to kids as early as you can. You know, to prepare them the best they can about how people are going to be, what's acceptable behaviour, what's not acceptable behaviour, and you, and just I think it's very really good. You know, for self protection in general, you know, it's good just to have a little bit of a commentary. And I always just say to my daughter, you know, if we were ever going out somewhere, I'd say, okay, so if you're on your own, who would you go to? Who would you speak to? Who here? You know, because get rid of the, the stranger danger gimmick, you know, that's, you know, who, who, who is the stranger you are going to approach in a, in a crisis situation? You know, we don't, it's, uh, um, where would you go to? And, you know, so we kind of like having this, you know, dialogue anyway. So the same thing with their self-protection, you try, you try to get that in as early as you can, but what's going to happen is, is with all your best intentions, uh, you know, things move along and stuff's going to happen, stuff's going to develop. Uh, my view is that, you know, I'd, you know, as early as possible, get the kids to always go try and go the, uh, the official route, you know, mm -hmm. always make sure. Because I've had parents say to me, say, look, you know, we've been in front of the teacher. We've talked about this. This bullying situation is still going on. It's not getting resolved. Um, I, I'm at the end of my tether now. You know, the teachers know it's going on. Yet my child's still getting bullied. My, you know, this physical thing. This is often what happens to me. So, so then we have to go and say, right, well, okay. You know get these reports you know get these reports uh, official you know make sure that these are there so you can always say it. so when it comes to the time when your child has got involved in that fight situation you know in your heart that they've been defending themselves and that your child has done ha has done it to defend themselves you know because they've been taught by you they understand about the boundaries and you'll know that something is very likely this situation has already begun beforehand you know it hasn't happened straight away but they've been zeroed in on and it's been reported you know such and such is you know picking on me such and such has um, started to get you know physical or you know threatening me or whatever like that and these kind of things will start will start coming up um and you know that kind of um you know that that kind of stuff thing gets on record so whenever it comes back to it and you're there sat there and you're also gonna again this is the other thing i was at one period um when I went to my secondary school, um, I was uh, petrified of my grandfather on my father's side. My father ran away to join the circus, you see. Uh, and uh, although I had a very good relationship with both my grand grandparents, my grandfather had put me into a, um, into a school that he was hoping that, was, that I would do well at, and then I would go into his business, the business that my father had left. So there was a bit of pressure on me when I, when I was at the school to do that. And it was a totally different environment for me. Totally, you know, I was the only... I was the only kid who lived in a caravan, put it that way. <laughs> you know I mean, at this particular school. I was the only kid who lived in a caravan, and it was just, and I, the environment was massively, you know, a big, big change to me. And I had serious bullying problems, funny enough, the actual school did. Um, within the first, um, within the first term, you know, tragically, a, a, a boy hung himself because the bullying problem was so bad. Um, 
but yeah, it had, it had issues along the way. Um, a lot of good things I got from the, from the school as well later on, but but at that time, he, he did have big, big problems with that. And my fear all the time was getting into trouble, you know, for a long time. So, you know, I'd go to the circus and we'd do all sorts and fight and get experience, you know, and just live a life. School, head down, terrified, didn't want to get detention, didn't want to have any, spend any more time at that place that I needed mm. to. I didn't want to upset my grandfather. And I'll, um, so, and I've often heard this from, from kids as well, when they've come back and they're terrified of getting into trouble and upsetting people. And you say, well, this is the other thing that parents got to say. Parents got to say that I've got to have full confidence that my child is physically defending themselves if they get in a fight. You know, that, that, so because of that, so when it comes to talking to say, so you can say to your child, say, look, listen, if you've got to do what you've got to do in order to defend yourself, I'm behind you. Don't worry about us. You know, we're, we're, we're on the same team. You know, all I ask that you do is that you don't go picking fights. You don't go, you don't be the antagonist. You don't be the bully. Okay. But whatever you need to do to defend yourself, we're behind you. You know what I mean? It's that try and report to the teachers, try and, you know, go down the official route definitely to make sure. I mean, this is the same thing that you would have, you know, if you're, as an adult, if you are being interviewed by the police, you know, in your, you, this is why self-defense and self-protection is very important to train all areas of self-protection, understand the legal side of it, understanding the, um, you know, the repercussions of the whole thing and, and having a system in place for that. So when actually you are there and you are facing a serious situation where someone's got seriously hurt because of your actions, when you've, when you've uh, defended yourself, you can feel that you know that you were, you were you were in the right to do that, that your reasons for doing that were to stop yourself from getting seriously injured by somebody okay? and you had no other option to do that. You want to be able to say that so that you're not, um, and again, it's the same thing that you, you're bringing across to, to, to your child. But the funny thing is that I often find that, although I don't believe in the sort of the byproduct idea that do martial arts, any martial art gets a child confident, they get more confident, then therefore they, they, they become less likely of a target. I don't believe in um, uh, uh, what, what you call it, um, misattributed sort of confidence, confidence that does not match up with competence. You know, competence should always match confidence mm-hmm. with a child. You know, you can get confident in anything. Okay, I've seen, pl- pl- we know that bullies will target both overconfidence and underconfidence. You know, you know they're, they're both just as likely targets. So just constantly thinking that, okay, let's just, you know, don't worry about whether this stuff's effective or it's going to work for them. Just because it will make them confident will then therefore make them a harder target. Well, there's other areas as well about making yourself a harder target, like being switched on, being aware, reading signs from other people. It, they come out of a person, then they become a harder tar- hard target. So that stuff is, you know, is important. So can we come straight back to a sort of situation where someone's being intimidated? And they are putting a boundary between them and somebody else. The back to you know Jeff Thompson's fence, for example. The knowledge that when they do go, they they they're going to be at a motor. You know they're they're going to be on a hit really hard and and regularly, and they'll do everything they possibly can to do that. And they'll do that with a lot of having that behind them. Can that can come across by the way that you're standing when you're when you're dealing with that kind of situation? I mean, there's nothing quite like. Um, since seeing, when have you seen that like, situations when you see like an argument that goes around and one person knows how to handle themselves and the other person is very much bluff and you can sometimes, you, if that happens, the person who's bluff, their bluff starts to dissipate very, very quickly if they actually haven't got any proper background and the other person does know how to 
Um, there, are, there are exceptions to the rule. You know, some people can do a very good job of mimicking um, people with experience. But generally speaking, you can see it because in the mind of the person who's, um, who's uh, the aggressor, when they see somebody else behaving in a way that um, they're confident with what they're doing, okay, and it's, you know, they're clear to have the confidence back up, it then becomes a difficult target and becomes, and, and that can dissuade the situation earlier. So that can, that can uh, de-escalate the situation earlier on. You, may, you mentioned uh, uh, Stranger Danger thing. I really enjoyed your Halloween podcast explaining the origins of that myth. Um, but we, you know, the, most of the children are still being taught that uh, Stranger Danger uh, and, and run away. Um, how should we approach that with children? You know, because there's a explanation explaining to them that, um, you know, don't take sweets from strangers or don't get uh, tripped, don't get be lured by them. But when you make the distinction, who is a reputable person to go and approach and who is not? I think you said in your book that you should um, do testing, which I really loved, in a shopping area, that you allow children to pick their own mind who is the trustworthy. Can you explain me more of that? Yeah, okay. So um, there's no reason why stranger danger is, is just a gimmick and it doesn't really work because... Um, uh, um, adults undermine it straight away. So don't, don't we ever say don't take sweets from strangers. What about trick or treating? Mm. What about what about when a child buys sweets in a shop? You know, is, is you know, there's there's any number of different sort of situations that that that, that, that you would have. And parents undermine it all the time because they'll they want their children to have good manners. So when mm. a stranger says hello to them when they're in their presence. It's say, say, say hello to the nice man, you know, but you just told me I can't speak to strangers. You know, it immediately is a contradiction that's, go, that's going on there. So, it, but I know why they've used it because it's very easy. It's very, very simple. And it's, and you've got this, you know, rhyming words, you know, stranger danger, deadly up to tell me, and what's a stranger in your whole list of what a stranger is. And it also, as I say, it marries up with our fear of outsiders. We've got a very, you know, in, in internal fear of outsiders it comes a very deep-rooted instinctive fear of outsiders people you don't know we're terrified of the unknown i saw a meme just put up recently where uh, and you'll see this from time to time people will show you like would you go to this place at 2 a.m in the morning and they'll show you some trees and a pathway it's a bandit's nest and there's no one on the pathway and the trees are up there and you, would you go to the place at 2 a.m and go well yeah because there's nobody really there okay 2 a.m in the morning and you're and you're walking down that thing but we'll go in 10 o'clock at night we'll go into a busy metropolis where statistically that is the height of when violence will happen you know that is the place where where 100 that's where all the that's where, that's where uh, sexual assaults violent assaults whatever you want to pick it's right there right in that place that they've got the best type the highest things of it it's always funny when you watch um a lot of horror movies they often set them in um, and they're at season it's in the outback or it's or it's out in the it's always out in the countryside or in America they've got the big thing about the deep south you know look at all the yeah. uh, do with the Halloween podcast you know think all the Halloween sort of uh, all the not Halloween move not the Halloween movies because there actually is suburban but if you actually look at like all the ones that are set like you know the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or the Hills of Eyes they're always like really abandoned place because that's our fear you know we're like in the middle of nowhere it's the unknown which worked well for us when we were very tribal. You know, work back in a more primitive time when you were in a, in a pre-industrialized time where you didn't know people. People were more tribal, so they're more likely to be more antagonistic to you. And therefore, that was a, you know, that was a, a genuine, understandable and uh, justifiable fear. So um, 
the stranger danger thing um the way to teach it with with kids again is um it's not it's not it's not stranger danger but it's it's, it's to say that um this is not acceptable behavior in human beings first of all okay so, so for anybody who behaves in this kind of way these are bad these are these are bad signs these are bad signals most important one not taking no for an answer mm. and um uh, understanding um so that's that and and, and preserving pres preserving your space getting help um, again, at an early stage, you start asking who's the most likely person. And again, there are some instincts that are well, going to help us. Well, you see people are going, well, that person's approachable. A woman with children is, is, more, is more likely to be, statistically, is more likely to be helpful. And more, most importantly, it's the children are approaching the strangers. This is the key thing. It's, the, it's, understand, it's giving the children the power to approach a person for help, going to a, going to a resource for help, um, rather than in all incidents where, you know, if you get back to stranger danger, majority of incidents of stranger danger situations have been the stranger approaching the child. You know, mm -hmm. you get, sometimes you get the odd um, fly trap, Hansel and Gretel kind of situation where there's a lure, so to speak. But even then, they're still being approached. They're still being approached. You know, it's still someone calling from a car or, mm -hmm. or um, you know, enticing with sweets or whatever and this is the sort of thing so in the rare occasions when um you know it is a stranger abduction a stranger assault, which does happen and uh, and i know unfortunately recently there's been a few instances have been brought to my attention of attempted abductions by strangers um that are um that have been verified by the police so you know of course it happens statistically absolutely um but again it's understand it's not the stranger element i think that, that gets a distraction that becomes a distraction it's it's what who's a safe person who's not a safe person who's likely to be a safe person who's more likely who's likely not to be a safe person so a lot of the time you ask the children and you ask them well, why would you approach that person and why would you approach that and they know a lot of the time they you know they they can see certain behaviors are not are not right they're out of, they're out of context and uh and, and other people are, are helpful but yes you know when with children if not you know often you know hate sounds sexist but a lot of time it's you know statistically again men are more likely to uh, assault a child in stranger stranger situations so again but you know there's few examples of people being adults being approached by children who have actually ever done anything bad to the children you know because the children selected them so yeah a lot of that again it's going to be based on on, on what they do and again the supermarket's the classic example you send your child out to ask for different items where where they are um and you watch them obviously um so they don't get into any danger they, when they come back and they find out then you then drill them and say why did you go to that person why not that person and not only that but also they're now learning things like what are that they're sort of they're sort of reading who is most likely to be able to help them in that kind of thing you know someone in a rush someone in slower someone um you know of a certain age and you and funny if you a lot of time you'll match that up and you know, kids are pretty spot on with that sort of stuff we often in a lot of ways we sometimes distract them and blur them with all the the stuff that we're hearing because we get all these sensationalized stories sent to us so that, that, that that's my approach with it it's not to say that it's not, it's not the fact that you don't know somebody it's more okay i mean if, if we're looking statistically that you know majority of child assaults are by people they know the children know usually a family member um and, and often with families and communities doing their best to try and cover up the situation as well and compound it um by their inactivity or their or their stopping you know situation from happening and sorry, stop, stopping from uh, the person being prosecuted and things like that. 
um, you know, it's very important for them to understand this is inappropriate behavior. This is, this is wrong. Doesn't matter who that person is, that's wrong. That's wrong. Um, you know, understanding, um, you know, personal distancing, you know, we think we call this the swimsuit, um, uh, a, a, a test and we say we say um you know any area that's covered by a swimsuit or or swimming trunks you know um you know that that's out of bounds you know if anyone ever touches you in that particular area stuff like that's out of bounds and to understand that for children it's very simple things just to for them to understand but yeah i mean that's that, that's my straight up response more more about teaching them to observe behaviors um and spot people and things like that and again you know they might come up with some things that are not right um and you can correct them on that but a lot of the time it's it's putting them it's empowering them it's making them independent so they're going out and seeking that help they're going out trying to rather than being reactive to a situation being reactive to a crisis you know, te- you know te- te- teach them to take charge you know this is this is often the you know self-sovereignty um that you know, that, that, that should be a part of children's self-protection put put the child in charge oh that's very good good uh, advice uh, um, i recommend highly to reading your book because it's very very interesting uh, and as we as we hooked on the uh, podcast uh, one thing which fascinates me about your podcast is your ability to um uh, get the titles, topics uh, from the different, I don't know, film, films, movies. Where do you get exp- uh, inspiration? Because I'm kind of lame with it. I just interview people. And when it comes up to do my own creative war, it's like, well, I have nothing to say, really, um, which people never heard. Oh, nonsense. But- I-, I love Anxious Black Belt. It's great. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Uh, uh, to be honest, your, your book was, was, was so refreshing in respect that it was so straightforward and it got straight to you know what what it was about it's so it was so lovely to be able to pick it up it's like it was one of those books that, that you could that i had it I had it by the side of my bed but i would pick it up you know if i was you know at a couple of minutes waiting so i could just pick it up and, and i could just look at it and it, it was just a, a refreshing straightforward read um and it's in many ways it's very different to me because i'm i'm i tend to be here i talk I, I go all over the place referencing and pulling different stuff out. So, um, you know, so in that way, I, I kind of envy that sort of much more sort of straightforward and uh, a, a structured way of, uh, of, of, of using that. But um, inspiration, just different things I've just grown up with, different things I've, I think a lot of the time it's just because I, I love writing. So I do love writing and I love, I mean, writing is my, my big passion. So I, I, everything is a story in some shape or form. So whether it's either a historical story or whether it's, um a, a fable and uh and i think you know at different periods we've always we love telling people fables and stories so a lot of the time you know you're um and, and it just helps ex- explain things really really well um allegories can be effective um and case studies can be effective uh, it, it depends on what you're trying to communicate across um you know sometimes the allegory is good because it's a hook I think a lot of the time the allegory is a great way to hook and people go, oh yeah, I can, I can hear that. So what's Pinocchio got to do with this? And then when you start thinking about, um, you know, the, the example there, because you talk about like, the different references that I use in the podcast. So the Pinocchio one, you know, straight away, I was, when I look at Pinocchio, I think of, I mean, that has a bit of a strange and danger message in there. Um, but the, the, my main takeaway for that is the procurer, the, the idea that you've got the bad company. That was always my that was my idea when I when I when I used the Pinocchio story and um, and above all else there's the character of Lampwick that you have in the in the Pinocchio story and and uh, mm-hmm. 
and quite a tragic character. This is the the bad wayward boy, so to speak, who who he met, who Pinocchio becomes best friends with, but gets him into trouble. Um, and this is this is the thing, you know, when you look at cases again with child sound protection, certainly it's getting in with the wrong groups. I know too, so many people who are essentially, um, um, well, I know, I know my family that. Um, I got in with the wrong people, um, fortunately got out of the, with the wrong people and, and really proved what they could become. But they could have very easily have gone straight down that path. And it's very tempting and very easy to pull, be pulled into it. And, you know, this is what happens. You get the, also adults, as we know, use child, other children as procurers in order to get children involved in crimes. You know, we've got that in Oliver, Oliver Twist is the classic example of that with, with Fagin. You know, he uses the artful dodger to, to, to pull in the other children to become the pickpockets. Tragic real life cases. We have things like the um, the, uh, the, 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 the the some of the child sex trafficking rings, where they use it's, it's usually the the uh, with the um, teenage girls who recruit their friends from school to become part of part of the sex ring. Um, and again, you see this all the time. Uh, so that's where I draw. Uh, that's what I drew from that example. So I, I get into this because I, I read. I, I'm very. I'm an omnivorous reader. I I, I read so many different things. I, I, I enjoy different things, and I and I and I watch a lot of different stuff. And I uh, maybe it's convenient. Maybe if I really wanted to look into it, I, I might say it's my circus background because it's variety and lots of different cultures all around me and and like that. But I, I don't know. I just it's just always been. You know, when when I when I grew up, I just was just. I had a lot of different um, interests in entertainment, but also I loved history as well. So I, I just drew upon all those different things. And I, just, and I found out that they were just an effective way to communicate to people. Case studies are good because you've now got, you can ground something in reality, uh, but uh, uh, fables and proverbs are good as well because you can, um, sorry, not proverbs, uh, parables, sorry. Parables and fables are effective because you can, you can hook people with, uh, an attractive idea or a familiar idea you know it's um i used i i, I approached hope you know with with pandora's box you know the story of pandora's box in pandora's box you can you can pull that to pieces and it's got lots of negative uh problematic should we say uh, issues involved with that story but for me when i from when i was a little kid the big thing that i got from it was one of the later adaptions put across the idea of hope the, the, the being hope and um um, and I thought it was interesting. I thought, you know, I'm often quite stoic about things when I, when I teach self-protection and, and martial arts, philosophically, I think. But I balance it as well with hope as well, because, of, because this, you look at Ben Sherwood's survival club and hope is what's got people through a lot in a, in a lot of very difficult situations. And I'm sure you can relate to, relate to that with some of the mental health issues. Hope's, hope can be a powerful force. I mean, not false hope. It's not, not necessarily false hope, but... but um, but but still this intangible drive that you have with people and um in, within a person that can help them survive and, and enforce their their attitude and an attitude to me is the most important thing with any type of training if you haven't got good if you haven't got a good attitude you're building on sand you know that you, you, you know, that the attitude has to be that foundation from the beginning all the way through to forever you know it's it's, it's attitude has to run through everything it has to start with attitude too um, this is the reason why also I don't, I, I've never been um, a very pushy instructor in terms of getting students in. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to be, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, care, you know, occasionally I'd have parents come to me and say, oh, you know, a bit of an effort to get into class today and all this sort of thing. And I'm going, 
he doesn't want to be here, then please, you know, it's not for him. It's not, it's not now for him or now it's not for him or whatever, because my attitude is that it's going, well, I'm, I can't, if you, if you, you've got to meet me somewhere, you know, I mean, I can teach you this, that, and the other, I can expose you lots of interesting things of all the stuff that's going to help you develop and make you better. But I can't start with, I don't want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's a, um, so maybe, you know, I think some, some instructors probably are much better than me at motivating and inspiring people to do that. But that is, you know, that if anything, if that's a weakness for me, maybe as a teacher, but um, to me, it's like, you have to start with, I want to do this. I want to do this. Um, and I can help get the attitude better and, and make recognize that attitude is important but um but we have to uh, have to start with that but yeah and that comes to say um my my big inspiration that was just listening to an audio uh my, i tell you what probably come from and i'm now going back to it when i was um when we used to move from town to town on the show um my mother always used to try and read to me at, at bedtime but often she couldn't because we were built what we call pulling down or building up and there's a lot of stuff going on you know animals to look after um, tents to go up and down and people to deal with and staff and she was running a show so um she got a tape recorder a little cassette recorder they used to have and that and used to put audio tapes in there so i listened to, i ended up listening to so many different audio books and things like that and it was and it was and people used to get you know often used to know and i really enjoyed it and i used to love telling the stories back and um and, and different people would always like oh you know, get little Jamie a, a tape. You'll love a tape. Give him a tape. So, so different people would buy me tapes. So I'd get all these different tapes from all these different, uh, you know, stories from all over the world sometimes. And then, so I suppose that that probably was part of my early formation to think of, oh yeah, that's an interesting way to communicate an idea to somebody, you know, so, so like that. So, so maybe, maybe it came from that because again, the Pandora's box one, it wasn't the Hesiod original early uh, Pandora's box I'd listened to. It was very much a later adaptation where the hope part of it was firmly in there. And that, and, and then later on, I would always think about that. I think about the idea of a white moth of hope and things like that. And then other stories would, you know, it's become useful ways to, this last series of podcasts, I've made them very much orientated towards uh, fables and parables. You know, it's, uh, um, you know, that's the, uh, um, uh, and, and trying to back it up again with, you know, with, with proper case studies and things like that as well. Last quick one because I have to go in a few minutes to class to teach. Um, martial arts, mental health. I really liked your uh, Black Dog podcast and what, uh, all what you described there. Um, does martial arts help your mental health? Definitely, definitely, absolutely. Always, always has done. It's um, it is such. <clears throat> it's it's. Um, I would say it wouldn't replace. So if I if I had to suffer um, a serious trauma or some of that, I'm sure it wouldn't replace um, professional help and help from just support from friends. But certainly, you know, getting through. There's nothing quite like um, having uh, a workout and having a focus and a passion connected with the martial arts. Yes, definitely, definitely, definitely for mental health. And and just the feedback I've had back from people who I've trained and worked with to say that it's it's helped them. Um, uh, to, to just cope with um, day-to-day problems, things that were more of a challenge before. Martial arts have, have, uh, have changed that a lot. And I think other activities can obviously do that, sort of the passion is, but martial arts um, is a great way of bringing challenges um, forward. I think it's always like, there's always a challenge within martial arts and, and it's the challenges with you. So it puts you in that, um, tracing it right back to children, what we were talking about earlier on about how it's 
so much about empowerment and so much about putting a person in charge. You know, you know, someone had to say to me, what do you, what, what, how would you define um, effective self-protection? And say, well, putting yourself in charge. You know, it's, that, that's the most important thing is putting somebody in charge, uh, taking the control. And when you start to make people feel like they're, they're, they're in charge, they're more in control, I feel that they, um, again, uh, it's, it's a better way than how to cope with things. You don't feel like you're constantly having to react to what, to what's coming to you, whether it's negativity, whether it's aggression, whether it's whatever issues it is, whether it's previous demons in your life or mistakes you've made or all those kind of things, you to have that um, conscious thought of being able to say, I can take charge and I can I can tackle this challenge. And sometimes they say, you know, uh, express it through your training, being great. It's a wonderful way to and a create. Now, martial arts are incredibly creative, I think, as well. We've seen this through the lockdown situation. You know, so many people have, um, uh, you know, there have been plenty of people who've been, you, you, you're listening to what, are they practicing what they preach? You know, all these teachers are saying, you must adapt, you must overcome, you must, you know, and and some people have just like have folded, you know, they've looked at this and they've gone, I, I can't cope with this online training. I don't like it. It's completely different to what I'm doing. It's not, it's, uh, it's degrading, it's degrading the stuff I do, you know, it's, uh, it's taking away from my training. And whereas plenty of other people, certainly the circle that I've been um, coaching in and learning with, uh, they've just like, yeah, this is the new, this is something else now. And we, that's how we can make the most out of this. You know, people like yourself and, um, you know, say, Mary Stevens and Lee Mullen and um, uh, 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 Ben Slack and uh, Vijay Pathak and, and Tracy Radley. There's, there's been some, and then obviously overseas as well, there's Chris Wilder and, um, of course, my good friend Ian Abernethy. I mean, these people have like completely, um, adapted you know to the situation they completely said let's you know let's 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 see what let's not talk about what we can't do let's let's deal with what we can do mm -hmm. now and that's got to be good for mental health that's got to have a good and it comes across in their students so there's nothing one better than being able to face with students. I'm, I'm looking at this and you know we're having like deep into lockdown at one particular time where you know a lot of people into burnout they've had enough they're fed up then they've you know even the most you know Pulley, you know, politically behind some of the stuff, and some of the people, you know, uh, you know, uh, who don't like, who don't, uh, are not very sociable anyway, are, are getting burnout, you know. So you're at that particular point, and you're sat there, um, about to take this lesson, and you're looking around you, and there's these kids there, and you're thinking, these kids, are, they've tuned in, they're ready, they're in there, they're they're ready in their uniform or their training clothes, or whatever they're going to be doing that particular time, and you're thinking these kids have been motivated inspired by these teachers you know they're doing something right here for these kids to go right i'm tuning in and they're doing something right with their parents because the parents are behind them and helping them to, to do this and you know, fair enough early on early on it's easy to come in then and go yeah yeah we'll give this a go we'll have a bit of a go at this zoom it's a bit of a party but now you're like oh my good we're into month four now <laughs> and i've do i've got of turning up and just turning up and doing this and the enthusiasm is there and i'm getting it out with the children i'm getting it out with the parents and the instructors and you know i'm just thinking all this lot should be you know having a nervous breakdown in this particular moment the kids should be bored and not wanting to do that and just you know uh, and uh, but they're not they're all turning up there looking forward to the lesson and coming back at me with questions and and, and i'm just and to me that's you know it's re it's really motivational for me so as a teacher so that if anything is a demonstration of how good it is for mental health i think so it's actually seeing the evidence there in front of me and then seeing the evidence in smiling faces and sweaty brows in deep into into a situation where no none of us want to be in none of us want to be um 
and dealing with and handling and um, having to approach, but actually just going in there going, yeah, come on, let's, let's make the most out of this. Jamie, thank you very much. Uh, one question, really quick one. Where can people find information about you? I put all the links below in the description. Tell us where to find your courses, your books, your videos, and get in touch. Thank you very much, Les. It's been wonderful on, um, bit to be here on the, uh, on the podcast. Uh, you do a fantastic podcast. I really, really enjoy it. And I think you're doing a wonderful service to the martial arts community in general. Um, my main base of operations is always my website, clubchimera.com. It's um, obviously they have to look at your link because the spelling for it is a bit unfamiliar for some people. Um, just to be awkward, it's double B and it's, uh, and it's the European spelling of Chimera. Um, but yeah, it's clubchimera.com. Uh, and off that, again, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on um, we have a business page on Facebook that's regularly updated all the time. I have a regular blog on the website. I'm on Instagram. I have a YouTube, regular YouTube channel. There's obviously the podcast, which you've mentioned as well. There's Twitter. There's LinkedIn. Pretty much all the main places that you expect to, to, to find this, um, uh, to, to find martial arts teachers who teach on, online. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I look forward to hearing from them and, um, and any questions that, that hopefully that have, um, have come from this, this discussion um, today. Um, I look forward to answering them. Cool. Thank you very much.